1: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, our weekly podcast guiding you through the important business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion in New York. And this week, we have a kind of monetizing others theme to the podcast. We'll start with healthcare and the possibility that big data might be able to predict and prevent illness. What's the privacy price we'd pay for that? And would it be worth it? Then we'll turn to Manhattan Apartments and ask whether they've become a tool for money laundering and how General Motors is making cash payments to those killed and injured by its defective ignition systems. And last but not least, we'll wrap up with our lightning round of the numbers that caught our attention this week. Let me introduce our regular guest, Kathy O'Neill, the head of the lead program for data journalism at Columbia University. What's your number this week, Kathy?
2: Um, hi, Felix. My number is hopefully the smallest number in absolute value that we're going to have on this <laughs> podcast ever. It's zero point zero zero one.
1: Ooh, zero point zero zero one thousandth. Tantalizing. Yes, we got it. Wow, that's that's a small number, Jordan. I
0: am, I'm assuming your number is bigger than ten to the minus three. It's a little bit bigger. It's but it's still modest. It's a modest one. It's eight hundred and sixty nine. Okay, and
1: my number is eleven, so I'm I'm sliding sliding in there in the middle. We will come back to those numbers later, but first, topic number one: big data, healthcare. Kathy, tell us what's going on.
2: Well, this week we heard a lot about um, people that are getting calls from their doctors or their or their insurers talking to them about, you know, don't forget to exercise, don't smoke too much, um, things like that. First, I'm going to explain why this is happening because I think I mean we can talk about the creepiness after that. But I think the most important thing about <laughs> That's what it we really want to talk about, yeah, is the we, we want to get there. But, yeah. but the most important thing to realize is that the Affordable Care Act has actually changed the way hospitals and, and medical systems are getting paid, um, especially for people on Medicare and Medicaid. Whereas it used to be that the systems got paid per like per service rendered per procedure. Basically. Procedure. Thank you. Which, you know, had bad incentives built in because they didn't, in particular, have reason to...
1: It gives doctors an incentive to just do lots of procedures rather than make people healthy.
2: Exactly. And they had less penalty for return visits and stuff like that. So we saw, you know, to some extent we thought maybe some of this rising health care costs was because of this bad system. We now have a different system with different consequences. The new system is where hospitals get paid for populations... Um, they get just paid a certain amount per person. And if they have to you know, give more procedures to that person, they don't get paid extra for that. So they have an incentive system now in place where they want to make sure those people have Minimum number of procedures.
1: They want to have a healthy population because a healthy population doesn't in- come into hospital. And if they're getting paid per person who doesn't come into the hospital, they're making lots of money. They, this sounds like
0: a great idea. To they, me. they want they have to be paid for outcomes, not for services. Is sort of the shorthand,
2: for right? It. And they actually it's a little bit more than that because they do get penalized if they have return visits. Yeah. Um, so and that's that's not new actually. That kind of penalization and they also get insurers get penalized for things like. Um, people who consistently don't take um, their medicine. So there's adherence issues. So th- there's lots of things going on. But w- one of the things that you have to keep in mind is now that we have incentives to keep people healthy, we have incentives to you know, experiment to see how to keep p- people healthy. And yes, that could be a great thing. In fact, it's probably a great thing. Let me just, before we go straight into how great that is, let me just make the point that I don't really know how hospitals are assigned neighborhoods. So if you can imagine you 're a hospital system, you have a bunch of hospitals, so you 're going to probably somehow negotiate which neighborhoods you 're in charge of under this new system, so whichever
1: neighborhood you are you 're in charge of you 're still going to want to maximize the healthiness of that neighborhood That's and you 're right. still going to want to try and intervene with the local population in whatever way um, is most effective at stopping those people from coming into hospital and using up expensive health care services right. right so that is. And, and that will include things like phoning people up and saying, hey, did you remember to take your medicine or have you gone for a walk today? Phone calls are cheap and they can be surprisingly effective.
2: Right, right. I just can't resist saying, though, that there's a lot of hospitals that are closing and I can't imagine it's not related to that. Here's the thing about big data, about snooping. Affordable Care Act has done a good job of making it so that you can't be penalized for being sick already. You can't get charged more and you can't get denied coverage because of your current system. But a lot of the data they're collecting and a lot of the data they're planning to collect, like through Fitbits on populations. like So right now Fitbits are for healthy people. But chances are now that they're in charge of entire neighborhoods, they're going to ask those neighborhoods to wear Fitbits.
1: Wait, when you say chance, again, like I, feel, I feel like we're, we're, we keep on doing this thing whenever big data comes, gets yeah. talked about, that we... Immediately jump into this kind of dystopian world where people are forced to wear monitors, and and you're saying, well, well they'll probably get entire neighborhoods. Let
0: me say, from a fashion perspective, an entire neighborhood wearing fits <laughs> is absolutely dystopian, just but, horrible. But, but, <laughs> but
1: like, you know, again, you're saying, well, they're probably yeah. like
0: doing these things to
1: populations, and they're probably going to do this thing, that this other thing. And this is the thing about big data, which always slightly irritates me, is that no one ever finds anything bad that's happening. All they ever do is they will in, well, probably at some point in the future, perhaps. And it's it's this like really dreadful thing which never actually happens in reality and is always probably going to happen next
0: week. Well, so as someone who is not usually too disturbed by big data issues, as as I've, I've told you guys, I'm I'm sort of the stereotypical millennial, and that is like my data, it's your my data, your data, all of our data, whatever. But. Some of the ways they are now collecting, hospitals are collecting this information is through a lot of the same exact databases online advertisers use to collect information on, on us and figure out what we might want to purchase. And what disturbs me about that isn't necessarily that they're going to do something malign with it. What is something a little disturbing about it is that... We think of our data going to one sort of company, you know, purchases you make via credit cards or membership rewards cards, your little Rite Aid card, for instance. Every purchase you make with your Rite Aid card then goes into a database somewhere. So they basically know what medicines you're buying or what health products or vitamins or whatnot Wouldn't you're buying.
1: You but your healthcare provider to know well, what medicines no, no. you're So buying?
0: I do think that's – but then you do start to wonder – beyond that, who beyond the healthcare provider has access to that.
2: Thank you. And so
1: this is why the fact that- Can we we just stay on topic here for a minute, which is this question of big data in medicine. And and what is the problem here?
2: First of all, I actually know quite a bit about this because I am approached constantly by startups that are doing this stuff. So when I say that people are going to be asked to wear Fitbits, I'm not saying that because I thought that in my own brain. It's because I've talked to people about saying, hey, should we get- the entire Spanish Harlem neighborhood to wear Fitbits so that we can track them and we can figure wait, out... Wait,
0: so I want to... Your stories are awesome. So I want to hear your actual story. Like, as, anon- make it as anonymous as possible. It is anonymous. But, but I'm please, keeping it anonymous. How, but I how am do talking they plan to, to do that? I'm curious.
2: They plan to try to get entire medical systems to ask all the people in this neighborhood who are under their care to wear Fitbits so that they can keep track of whether they, their diabetes is under, under check and all that kind of thing. And I'm going to go back to what Jordan said, which is exactly my point. Obamacare has protected certain people from like medical repercussions for this, but they have not protected any of this data from other kinds of repercussions like getting a job. So if you tr- apply for a job, your Fitbit data is not protected under the HIPAA Act and any or the Axiom data that's collected by them, the marketing, the big data warehousing that collects marketing data and then sells it to these medical providers. They could also sell that stuff to your potential employer who who is legally allowed to not offer you a job because of this risk factor that they it 's kind of like a credit score but it 's a health score these already exist felix i 'm not making this up
1: wait mass populations of of, of Fitbit data already exist
2: no i 'm talking about the kinds of it 's kind of a health score versus credit score that already exists The question of how well it 's done, how um, standardized it 's become, how like predictive it is that's going to get increasingly predictive, increasingly standardized as we have more Fitbit data. But it's already out there. We already collect data. about. So, so,
1: so if I'm an employer and I'm hiring someone, there's already a database I can query to see how healthy I think they might be.
2: There's already scores in that sense. Yes. And it's being collected, Buy places like it, Axiom, which they claim, by the way, in the, in the article I read in Business Week, they claim they don't sell this stuff except for marketing purposes. But I'm not sure how well they check their clients on what they actually use them for.
1: Okay. So so just to be clear here, what what we're seeing is, is big data in medicine, which is probably a good thing. What we're worried about is the data then being used outside medicine because there's no protections yes. about that. Awesome. Not awesome. Scary. But- At least we understand what the problem is now. Next week, we'll come up with a solution. Uh, (laughs) In one fell swoop. In one fell swoop. Jordan, tell us about Manhattan real estate.
0: Well, to talk about Manhattan real estate, uh, we need to take a a quick moment to talk about Swiss banks. I I promise, just very briefly. This Tuesday, a a new law went into effect. known as the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, which basically says that foreign banks i.e. secret of Swiss banks, have to start forwarding the U.S. government all sorts of information on their American clients or fake, uh, big taxes here, stateside big penalties. So Swiss banks, not necessarily the great places to kind of stash away your money that they once were. And, you know, it's not just America that's doing this. In India, for instance, the government is now asking for information on Indian residents about what money might be stashed away. You know, the old ways of hoarding your cash don't necessarily work the way they used to. But, you know, it is a good way to stash away a little bit of money is in a Manhattan condo, maybe somewhere between 50th and 70th Street. And uh, one of our favorite publications, New York Magazine, had a large article this week about the fact that, uh, I think it's called Stash Pad, uh, instead of Crash Pad, um, about the fact that the luxury condo market, which really is almost the, the driving so much of the entire real estate market in New York, is largely being fueled by these foreign buyers, some of whom are just looking for places to kind of come two weeks a year in the United States. And, you know, they might have some business they want to or their child might want a quick vacation, a shopping trip to Fifth Avenue, whatnot. But also, it seems like a lot of these condos are being used to essentially launder money or hide money, because if you do enough of a transaction involving, you know, you have a trust in the Cayman Islands that then has an interest in an LLC, a limited liability company that then goes and buys a condo here in the U.S. It's really hard to tell who actually owns that property and okay, whose what. So I it. have, I have so two that questions was the point. here.
1: Yeah. Um, the the first question is yeah. why man, If if this is just a question of money laundering, yeah, rather than real estate speculation or rather than people wanting to buy places in Manhattan, then why is it just the luxury condos and why is it up between 50th and 70th Street and why is this not happening
0: in every... You know, city in America. I don't think it's just money laundering. And that's not the point the article makes. It says that's one component of this. You know, I bet some of the times that the... In fact, I'm almost sure that some of the times that a limited liability company buys a property rather than an actual person, it has to deal with people just wanting to be private about their wealth. Probably some security reasons. They just don't want people knowing and, that they live there part is, of the year. And earth. this is also but, my, but, my,
1: my single biggest problem with this article okay. is that because property records are public in, in New York. Yeah. And they, lo- they say, well, if you look at the property records, it turns out there are very few foreign buyers. But then, on top of the very small number of foreign buyers, there's a very large number of LLCs. And LLCs are often used by foreign buyers. So let's just assume that they're all foreign. And this is a ridiculous assumption. I live in a tiny condo building myself with 13 units, all of which are owned by Americans, except for me. I'm English. And three or four of the units are owned by LLCs. Like, you know, the the Americans who bought those units used an LLC for various different reasons. It's entirely normal Everybody does it. And the idea that you can assume that because it's an LLC, there's something nefarious or something even foreign going on is completely
0: insane. Well, I do think that there's, they do track out specific instances where LLCs were used. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. There are instances. There in are that, one
1: or two. But, that, but yeah. at that point, you just go back down to you know anecdotal evidence of, like, here's a case where there was money laundering. And I'm sure it's possible to use these things to launder money. But again why would it be Manhattan? Why would it be luxury apartments? Yeah, well, I, th- I think I just, I'm going to interrupt. <laughs> okay, you. interrupt.
2: First of all, I agree with you that they don't have proof. But I just want to make the point, as a data person, that when you're talking about things that are hidden explicitly, it's hard to come up with proof. Right. So... Um, that's not really a criticism. I mean, of the article, it, it, what they had is anecdotal evidence, and I think enough evidence, personally speaking, to create a picture of what's happening here. If we make it harder to hide your money in Switzerland, it's going to go somewhere else. We're squeezing a balloon, and it's not an, a ridiculous concept that some of that some of that balloon is going to be pushing into New York City. Like, and and to answer your online. question yeah. Yeah. about why New York, yes. I would wager that part of it is that it's just a very well-established way of doing it with all the people that are working in that industry. In the article, they were talking about, oh, well, I just went and bought a vacuum cleaner for one of my favorite customers. Like, who does that in not Omaha?
1: Money launderers. If you're, if you're laundering money, you don't give a toss whether there's a vacuum cleaner in there or not.
2: My point is it's a, it's a system that works... Well, and it exists in New York. It also exists in okay. Miami. It exists in places where you have an excuse yeah. to have an apartment anyway.
0: You're saying there's an agglomeration. Yes. Uh, you have industry agglomeration. I here. think there are certain
1: global cities yeah. which are popular for the global plutocratic elite, yeah. wh- you know, who would like to buy expensive apartments. Historically, it's been London. It's been Toronto. It's been Miami. It's been You know, various, Sydney is very popular among the Chinese. And recently, New York has been on the list more than it ever has been in the past. It used to be that New York was nearly entirely New Yorkers. And now there's an increasing number of foreigners, nowhere near as many as there are in Toronto or Vancouver or London, but still more than there used to be. And I think that the interesting thing about this article is that it shows the ease of using these to get around various New York customer anti-money laundering laws, that kind of thing. It's quite easy to sort of hide your money in a New York apartment. What it didn't go into is the obvious questions of, well, how easy is it to hide your money in a Hong Kong apartment or London or Toronto or Vancouver? So, you know, we don't know whether New York is an outlier in this respect. And what I think realistically is going on is that we're having a sort of mean reversion here, that New York is joining the ranks of global cities. It was always weirdly cheap, actually, compared to most global cities. And now it's coming back up to their level and prices are going up. And I'm a little bit hesitant to start ascribing, you know,
0: squeezed balloons and bank secrecy laws for this. But you never know. I think there's probably a balance between the two. I think that there's also um, your question of why would they be doing it here in the U.S., even if they're not trying to launder ill-gotten gains, but they're just trying to you know, stash away some perfectly legally earned or legally earned money that they just don't want to pay any taxes on or wealth they don't want to pay taxes on, is that you can still get a very consistent rent here in New York or a certain return you can expect. and It's a very stable market, especially when you're talking about the luxury. And remember when Matt Iglesias was commenting on this article, I don't know if he saw it, but he, he said, why not do it in Jacksonville, for instance, where you don't have investigative reporters running around. And it's like, well, you need a market that, A, there is this talent. That exists to cater to this kind of customer and B, that you can kind of expect that there's going to be a, a consistent return.
1: And, and I simply disagree that rental yields in Manhattan are more consistent or more predictable or higher than rental yields in Jacksonville.
0: Well, the other, the other thing is in Jacksonville to put away that money, you'd have to buy so many freaking houses and then rent them out to so many people. It becomes a much grander project than just stashing away $2 million in one apartment. I think that's that's probably part of it Maybe as well. That's
2: Let it. me just that, throw in one more. Anyway. One last thing, thing from Kathy. Which is the role of the NAR, the National Association of Realtors, I would argue that they made it clear that it's pretty easy to launder your money this way. And the NAR has... They, a,
1: meaning meaning the, the...
2: The authors of the article. Andrew
1: Rice, not the National Association of Realtors.
2: <laughs> well, okay, maybe them too. If you, if you read what they say, they basically say, oh, we want to help filter money laundering. So what we do is we don't care. And that, I mean, basically, I, that's a paraphrasing of their, what they actually said. They say they have some kind of risk assessment because nobody likes to live with a, a crook. Anyway, I just think that the lobbying power of the NAR is, is part of the story here. And it's an interesting part. So
1: are you saying that were it not for the lobbying power of the NAR, then there would be much more transparency and it would be much harder for LLCs to buy property? I think it, it, I, I, I honestly think this is just inertia more than anything else. And that it has always been possible to buy property using an LLC, and people are now using it in a slightly different way than they used to. But I don't think there was any lobbying involved. You would actually need to change the law in order to stop this from happening. And no one seems to have any urgency to do that. Well, we
2: changed the tax laws, though. I mean, we, we decided to try to collect money in some ways, but not in other ways.
1: You mean with the Swiss banks? Exactly. Yeah, But we haven't changed the law with regard to property transactions. That's my point. And, th- and property transactions are local. I think when New York City starts caring about international money laundering, you know, it'll happen eventually. You, I'm not Mike holding get my the breath.
0: Care, just the, the sheer ugliness of some of the architecture, actually, that's coming out of this <laughs> might actually... Have you looked at 157 recently? It's terrible. <laughs> on the other hand, the new one going up
1: on, on Park Avenue is actually really beautiful. That's, that's true. And, and, but is that the trade we want to make, one for one? Uh, no, I think actually to be... I, I would I would completely disagree with that I completely. think I think that New York is a city of skyscrapers, and that we haven 't had new and interesting skyscrapers for a long time, and these slender towers, which only become possible when you can charge upwards of five thousand dollars a square foot. Mm-hmm are actually a very unique and interesting form of architecture. And not all of them are going to be beautiful. And I agree that 157 is not particularly beautiful. But in general, (laughs) tall, slender towers are beautiful. Go to San Gimignano in, in Italy. And I think that architecturally speaking, and in terms of the New York skyline, this is entirely a good thing. But we have spent much too long on this topic. And so we will move on a little bit more briefly, I think, to this question, which I'm sure we're going to cover many times in the future. Ken Feinberg, that it's that man again. He has been given an unlimited amount of money by General Motors to dole out to anyone who can prove that they were killed or injured or their loved ones were killed or injured by a faulty ignition switch. He has this down to an art at this point. He has a formula. He, if you were in the hospital for one night, you get $20,000. If you were Killed and you were earning this much money, you get $5 million. And you put in your claim and you put in your supporting documentation about how much you were earning and how much you're expected to earn and how old you were and how injured you were and all of this kind of stuff. And out pops a number. And then you can take it or leave it. You can either say, That seems fair, I'll take the check, and you get the check more or less immediately. Or you say, That doesn't seem fair, I want to sue you. And then It will go to court, and your chances of winning, if you were in any kind of accident before the General Motors bankruptcy in 2009, are quite slim because this is a different company. But in any case, Kathy, what do we think about this latest compensation scheme?
2: Well, I do think it's interesting what you just mentioned—that it's a different company. So, in some sense, they don't have to be doing this, but they are doing it. And so it's kind of um it's kind of like a reputational risk is proven correct kind of scenario. It is a rare event. It doesn't seem to happen a lot in the banking industry for example. So
1: it's General Motors better than Lehman Brothers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um so that that's interesting. I mean, basically the story as I see it is they hid the problem and then they hid the problem more because they're like, "Oh, we hid the problem so it's going to look really bad if we admit it now." And then they're like well, the cat's out of the bag. Let's just go for it and, and be generous. And they kind of had to do that. One of the things that just piques my interest is how often this happens. Like We we don't see it happen to come to public very often. I'm wondering, can someone do a statistical analysis on just trying to guesstimate how often this kind of thing happens, but people don't put the pieces together and well, figure I it mean, out?
1: I mean, it's relatively rare for a for there to be a clear causal relationship between corporate decision-making on the one hand and people dying on the other. So when there's a big explosion at a BP oil rig and 12 people die, then it's clear that that's BP's fault and they are going to need to compensate the families of those 12 victims. When you have clear incompetence on the part of General Motors, which caused death, um, then again... You know, you can draw that line pretty clearly. What's one of the interesting things about this, though, is that Feinberg has said he is going to pay no attention whatsoever to whether you were drunk, whether you were wearing a seatbelt, or anything like that. Um, factors which would come into play if you took GM to court, and he's just going to say, "I." I'm not paying attention to that. I will just give you the money assuming you're completely... Wait, famous. did he
2: really say he wouldn't pay attention to yeah. that he didn't It didn't prevent you from claiming? No, I think he's not
1: paying no, He bad. pays no attention. Oh, no. It, it, it does it. not go into... It does not factor into the That's calculation. That's
0: interesting. So there, you know... I think Ken Feinberg's just a, a fascinating guy. The, just the evolution of his career. I mean, I ever, you know, he got started with the Agent Orange resolution process, and then, of course, became famous with the 9-11 fund. And, and since then, it's almost like for a company that's done horribly, horribly wrong, it's like a celebrity will go on Oprah to confess their sins. Uh, now, BP and GM go to Ken Feinberg to manage their resolution trust. It tells you how few people actually have the credibility to do this, and I think speaks to how rare, like you're saying, this actually is. And one of the reasons i think it's so rare is because it's it's twofold you a you essentially have to have an instance where there's a very very high chance that they're going to lose in court and then you also have to have an instance where even the chance that they're going to be able to deflect some suits or just push them off in time by litigating is so bad for them pr wise and is going to have such an awful effect politically probably that it's better to just get it all resolved up front and I think that's part of what's going on with GM, too. There, there's a lot of talk of just the sheer number of recalls that are going on while they're administering this at the same time.
2: And to be is, clear, yeah. this
1: is only one faulty ignition switch that they're talking about. Yeah. Um, if your airbag deployed, then that proves that the ignition switch was working. So no one who had an airbag deploy can claim this kind of thing. GM has recalled 20, millions of vehicles. 29 million, for- I think. For dozens
0: of different reasons. Yeah. And there's only one of those recalls that this b- pertains to. But they're doing all of these recalls at the same time when, when this big issue with the ignition switch is going on. And the consensus seems to be foreign is they're just clearing their plate. They're clearing it off completely. Any problem that might have happened at the old GM, at the current GM, they are just trying to erase so they can get a fresh start completely. And it's weird. But in a way, this might all work out for the best for GM in a lot of ways because you know, it hasn't really hit their sales. Their sales in June are up. Their resale values, the thing that you think would be hit most by all these recalls, the the resale value of the cars that are apparently made by this incompetent company hasn't declined at all. And soon they're going to have every conceivable problem that ever had in their product just kind of
2: buried. So, so- I, I think what this, I mean, I agree with you. I yeah. think it's a success story. I think what it happened was they messed up that ignition, but they kept their integrity by making this offer. I mean, that's the story. I think. Oh, it's I think they're be.
1: trying to regain their integrity. I think. I think right, the yeah. investigation into the way they covered it up proved a distinct lack of sure, integrity. Sure, absolutely. And and that now they're they're scrambling to get it back. So I think the one the one person who really is keeping his integrity here is Ken Feinberg, <laughs> um, and and, it, and he has this almost unique place in American life. The only other person I can think of who has that sort of copper-bottom trust placed in him by the American people is probably Paul Volcker. You can wheel in Ken Feinberg, and he can make demands. So he said to GM, you cannot appeal any of my decisions. All of my decisions are final. And GM said, okay. And that's because everyone trusts Ken Feinberg. And it's a weirdly personalized thing. That you couldn't just get Ernst and Young to do this. You know, you it needs to be an individual.
2: (laughs) Right, right. And I was just gonna say I I don't know how many other corporations exist in our country or in the world that would actually get to this point and, and make this offer with Ken Feinberg. How many clients does Ken Feinberg have? I guess is my question. It's a finite number.
1: But he doesn't need that many, and he gets very well paid. And a lot of the time, it's the government. After the Boston bombings, it was yep. public money that he was Virginia Tech
0: out. also. When it's A lot of the time, it's also private money that comes in from just charity. And, what,
1: and what, one of the very interesting things is that one of the most critical voices about this sort of Ken Feinberg mini-industry, which has sprung up, is Ken Feinberg. Yeah. That what he says, and it's absolutely true, is that... Millions of people die every day for millions of different reasons. And sometimes there's corporate malfeasance, sometimes there's crime, sometimes it's an accident, you know, people get sued all the time. And once in a blue moon, if you happen to have a relatively large number of people dying for the same reason, Ken Feinberg will get called in. And, you know, if you happen to die in the Boston bombing, then your family gets a big payout. But if you died from an equally tragic occasion which wasn't the Boston bombing, then your family doesn't. And there's something incredibly unfair about this. And Feinberg, to his credit, is the
0: first person to say, why are we paying out these people and not those people? He made the point to Jim Elephant at National Journal that, you know, every day, you know, little kids in Chicago essentially get killed by straight bullets and they don't get compensated. I mean, that was that's the level. That's how stark the terms he himself puts it in. Um, and it, he's right. I mean, it just makes it, us
2: trust him more. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
0: that's it's actually the game he's playing. It's um, the game he's playing. Yeah. But it's a good
1: game. I think I think it is good for General Motors anyway. And it's probably good for the families of the people who got killed thanks to General Motors. Incompetence. So, in a way, it's the best outcome given the gruesome history of this episode. We're going to move on to the numbers. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what I've been waiting for for the past half an hour. Are we going top to bottom or bottom to top? Which would you like to do, Jordan? Either one. You're in the middle. It doesn't make any difference to you. Okay, I'll go bottom. Let's go bottom to top. Bottom to top. Okay, Kathy.
2: That's me. Um, my number is point one percent. I'm going to rephrase 0001. <laughs> 0.001. is one percent. It's the amount by which Facebook managed to make people sad. Oh. Oh. Yes, I did that. Yes. Oh. We wanted to talk about that this week, but we did not have time. So I'm just going to shove it into the numbers section here. Um, so, in fact, it's not really about emotions. If you read the report, it's about the people, the words people use. Mm-hmm. And the. Um, I think the researchers were kind of...
1: It like, managed to make people angry quite successfully. Yeah. Wait, can we do a that's, tiny that's recap of what, Kathy, do a sure. tiny recap of what Facebook did, just so, for the few people Facebook who might have missed this. Facebook
2: edited people's um, timelines by removing happy things. They did this to 155,000 <laughs> well, people.
1: They do this every day. That anyway. was my next
2: thing that I was yeah. going to say. They do this every day, and I don't have a lot of time, but they do it every day. Usually it's just to see how who will click on what and who will buy what. And the last thing I want to mention is that Jordan Ellenberg wrote a little thing on Slate this week linking to it, uh, another article that said sad people, at least if they're self-absorbed and sad buy more things so there is a connection
1: <laughs> so i was wondering why facebook going going onto facebook made me so depressed recently it was just because i wind up buying more you know what jordan oh, i was wrong that's... you're you're not in the middle i'm in the middle you're, yeah. you're in the hundreds, aren't in the you? hundreds i'm hundreds yeah. i'm merely 11 so i'll go i'll go next 11 is the number of seven four sevens that Boeing has sold as private jets. Oh, God. <laughs> and and it actually gets worse than that. There are another 21 other big Boeing jumbo jets which they've sold as private jets, including three 787 Dreamliners. Oh. This is one of Boeing's big growth industries. It's not selling jumbos to airlines, but just selling them to individuals who want a
0: larger private jet. I thought That's- that was... Oh, God, you know, there are just so many like kind of minor billionaires out there or my, like, minor hundred millionaires who are just cringing, thinking, oh, I can never afford that. Um, but, anyway. uh, the,
1: the list price, just for the record, the list price of a Boeing 747, if you want to buy one as a private jet, you know, service journalism for our Slate Money listeners, $350 million. Oh, that's it not was,
0: so bad. It would cost, cost a little bit more than that once you kit it out. But the base price is... What pretty... is ma- what's the maintenance cost, though? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, so... We're heading into July 4th weekend, um, so I wanted something that was a little appropriate for the grilling, the drinking we're all going to be doing. So this week the census reported that uh, – my number is 869, which is the number of breweries in the United States as of 2012. It had more than doubled since the last economic census in 2007. Thus, the U.S. government has confirmed that while – So wait, in 2007 there were 400-odd? There were 398 breweries in 2007. 2012, there were 869. Thus confi- and that doesn't include my basement. It does not include your basement, Felix. Uh, so, you, <laughs> Although there are a lot... Although it does smell down there. Several hundred of them are one to four guys working in a garage somewhere, probably. And some of them are making great beer. If you've ever tried the brewery, it's like one guy out in Cal... like spelled B-R-U. It's like one guy out in California. But... Just confirming that while much about American life has become vastly, vastly worse than 2007, our our options for beer are one unquestionable bright spot.
2: Yeah, and I'm surprised it's so low. Actually, makes me want to go run outside and start a brewery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think we should do that. We'll we'll start we'll start the Slate Brewery in the Hudson Valley. Vice owns a pub in London. I think Slate should start getting into the brewing business. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and we will give you, you know, a few growlers, something like that. Oh, my They're, God.
0: We'll, we'll think of something. Something to make your Saturday morning go a little faster.
1: Exactly. So I hope you enjoyed Slate Money on this Saturday and that you are now feeling thirsty and you're going to hit the grill and drink beers and generally be all-American on the most American weekend of the year. Thank you for listening. If you like the show... Subscribe in iTunes. We would really appreciate it. Just search for Slate Money in the iTunes store. And if you have something nice to say about us, leave us a review. And if you have any comments or kudos or complaints or anything else, write to us at SlateMoney at Slate.com. The producers for Slate Money are Stan Alcorn and Tracy Samuelson. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Kathy O'Neill and Jordan Weissman, I'm Felix Salmon, and we'll talk to you again next week on Slate Money.